Welcome to the VMJ podcast. I'm Duncan Jarvis, multimedia editor here at the VMJ. And I'm Nabjoit Lada, analysis editor. This week we're at the Preventing Overdiagnosis Conference in Quebec, Canada. The Preventing Overdiagnosis Conference has been running for a few years now and is a forum to discuss the harms associated with using uncertain methods to look for disease in apparently healthy people. And it's part of the BMJ's Too Much Medicine campaign. One of the speakers at this year's conference is Stacey Carter, who's an associate professor at Sydney Health Ethics and author of a recently written essay on BMJ.com looking at overdiagnosis with an ethical framework. Um, hi, Stacey. Thanks for joining us today. Hi, Duncan. It's lovely to be here. Um, so this conference is about trying to move to some solutions um, to overdiagnosis and kind of medicalization in general, I suppose. But I think it's clear that this isn't really about fixing you know, individual diagnoses, like the thresholds of it, or maybe fixing screening programs. It's all about really a fundamental culture change. Um, in your talk, you talked about how right diagnosis, what we decide is, is what the diagnosis should be, is actually arrived at through the sort of group gestalt. Could you explain what that actually means? So this comes from um, some work that we did on trying to define overdiagnosis, trying to conceptualise overdiagnosis. And one of the things that most people in the field agree on is that overdiagnosis is about correct diagnosis, but it's correct diagnosis that does harm instead of benefit, often unexpectedly. But then that begs the question, what's a correct diagnosis. And when we thought about that, we wanted to push back on the idea that a correct diagnosis is one that perfectly reflects the underlying biological reality. And the reason for that is it's just too simple. And it's too simple for a number of reasons. So one of the reasons is that often we're talking about thresholds. So there's not a clear place at which there's disease and not disease. It's about where do we put the threshold and that has to be decided somehow, yeah. and it's generally decided through some form of consensus, informed by the research and the evidence that you referred to, I think, and hopefully very strongly informed by, but it has to be by consensus. But then also, if you look at the history of disease, through, you know, back a long way, individual diseases have been reconceptualized and reformulated so many times over time. So diabetes, just as an example, there's been many, many versions of what people thought diabetes was, and then many, many versions of how you might treat it over time, and it keeps evolving. So the imagination even of how the disease works in the body has changed phenomenally over time. And you could say, well, we're just getting closer and closer to really understanding things through science, and to some extent that's true. But it also indicates that given that at each of those points in history, the people who decided that that's what diabetes was and this is how we should treat it all agreed with one another that this was correct, there's every chance that in 50 years' time we'll look back and go, oh, those people in 2016, 2017, I can't believe that that's what they thought diabetes was and that's how it should be treated. So I think just the history of medicine shows us that uh, we can never have a pure understanding of what's going on biologically and that our understanding of disease changes over time. And so it's something that has to be agreed between relevant professionals. So that's, that's what a correct diagnosis is. It's what relevant professionals at the time can agree on. And so given that this, there is this kind of 
collective decision making, this consensus that um, needs to be built, is sort of um, the responsibility is sort of shared, which means it can feel sometimes like it's everyone's problem and no one's problem. How do you think we get around that and tackle that? So I think it's really important to recognise that overdiagnosis is a problem in systems. So generally, when overdiagnosis happens, it's because we've made a decision that is leading to more harm than benefit about a threshold. We've set the threshold too low, for example, so we're catching too many people that don't benefit from being diagnosed. Or a disease boundary, we're making the disease boundary too wide, so more and more people get captured and so more harm is done because those people at the fringes were never actually destined to benefit from being diagnosed. Or perhaps we're screening too often, or we're screening too young or too old or the wrong people. Um, so those decisions, those practices are decided collectively. So if overdiagnosis in that way is a problem that arises from having the wrong defaults, the wrong set point in a system, then the people that create that system have to take some responsibility for fixing it. It doesn't seem reasonable to say then to the individual patient or the individual GP, um, okay, so we've got this overdiagnosis problem, you fix it as an individual without changing the system. So there has to be interventions in the systems that create those standards. Um, so, and some of my colleagues, Ray Moynihan in particular, has done a lot of work, for example, on definitions of disease mm -hmm. and the way that if you look, look empirically at what happens to the definitions of disease over time, they get wider and wider and wider. And generally speaking, the more people who stand to benefit from the widening of those definitions are involved in their creation, the wider they get. You know, there's, there's definitely a relationship there. So is that to say that individual doctors and individual consumers or members of the public can't do anything? Not at all. I mean, of course it's possible at an individual level to do some pushing back. But if it's a collectively caused problem, then I think we do need collective solutions. Hmm. And I think that makes it difficult as well, because, I mean, you've talked about this subject as a GP. The the individuals standing out from the herd is, is quite hard, or that sort of group thing that makes everyone pull together. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you feel it is a powerful thing to be part of, you know, your tribe and do you work in a pattern that's consistent with what your tribe does and to sometimes step outside of that, which often countering overdiagnosis in whatever small way you can does feel a bit like that sometimes. But I guess it all comes down at some level of that relationship with your patient that that does that is quite an empowering thing I think sometimes is making those decisions with with the patient can um, it, but you're right absolutely if systems change is probably the thing that's gonna gonna you know you're just chipping away at something very slowly otherwise mm -hmm. and I think it's interesting um, we've talked to lots of individuals about you know why they've got interested in in overdiagnosis or whatever happens with any other movement in medicine and often it's prompted by a single you know, patient or something, someone where the harms of, of, of diagnosis or whatever it is has become apparent. And you talked about this in your talk, um, this idea of kind of like a, a moral shock. Mm -hmm. um, 
What does that kind of mean? Could you explain what that is for people? Sure. Um, so I borrowed the term moral shock. I can take no credit for it whatsoever. <laughs> uh, so James Jasper is the scholar who I was drawing on for that concept. So, And he is a scholar of social movements. So the point that I was making in my talk today is that to some extent the people at this overdiagnosis conference are part of a social movement. Social movements develop in certain ways and one of the things that's important in catalyzing them is these moral shocks, which is um, when through some new information or through some new way of seeing things, you suddenly see the world differently. And you see the world differently enough that it changes your evaluation of things and it perhaps even changes your moral view of the world. It changes what you feel is right and wrong enough that you're willing to get involved in trying to change things. So there's a number of clinicians involved in this preventing overdiagnosis movement and I think they're often clinicians who have experienced this moral shock. They've suddenly thought, oh my goodness, what, what have I been doing in my practice all this time? I have to work out how I can get involved in trying to pull back um, this, this problem of too much medicine. Mm. How do you get from that individual moment of clarity and, and change to a collective one where this culture change could actually happen? Mm -hmm. um, and there's no one easy answer to that, of course. If it was easy, then we'd all be doing it. But, um, but that's kind of what social movement theory, social movement scholarship is all about. Um, it's not my specialist area, but I really admire the people that work in it and have learned a lot from their work. And it's mostly about um, trying to understand the course of development of social movements and how you go from a few unhappy individuals to an organised movement. Um, certainly one of the things that's really important is leadership. Um, usually social movements come together because they have really strong leadership. But also really important are things like um, forms of organisation. So things like this conference, things like this podcast, um, anything that, that creates a sense of people being able to come together and be unified um, is really important to the development. But also super important is framing and the way that we communicate this. And one of the, way, one of the things that is deeply recognised in the social movement literature that I think um, is important for us to pay attention to is that that framing, that information, can't be just about the cold hard evidence. Mm -hmm. So the cold hard evidence is really, really important, obviously, we need it. But social movements are always also about emotion. So it's not, not just about the scientific facts, it's about actually getting people to engage enough with either a sense of threat, something that they're that they could quite reasonably fear, or, or a sense of injustice, something that they can feel angry about, and also a sense of hope that there's something that they can do together. So some kind of collective activity to move people to that place of emotional engagement is what is required to create a social movement out of a whole lot of disparate individuals that happen to be having the same kind of grumbles. And let's just pick up on that, because in your keynote speech at the conference today, you spoke about how exactly that, how it's not enough to just kind of dispassionately lay out some risks um, and benefits and give some sort of percentages. Um, that's not how we make decisions as individuals. Um, so what are some of the um, sort of, I guess, thought processes or things that factor into people's decisions that... Um, clinicians and um, individuals need to be aware of? Mm -hmm. 
Um, and policymakers as of well, course, actually, yeah. and we might come to that at the end. So, and this, as you know, is a big part of what the essay is about. So I had this moment about six months ago where it suddenly struck me um, because I've been working in ethics for quite a while, there's these things called trolley problems that I write about in the essay. And I'll let you read the essay to find out what they are, but they're basically slightly artificial scenarios where you're asked to weigh up one person dying versus five person people dying, and should you do something to make sure that the one person dies rather than the five. And the interesting thing about them is, depending on how you set them up, people give very different responses, even though ostensibly the numbers are exactly the same. You know, so you'd think that people should give the same answer, but, but they don't, depending on the context and the, the information that you provide to them. So um, what all of that work has shown is that, in certain situations at least, people seem to take more than just the outcomes into account. And it suddenly struck me about six months ago, the way we set overdiagnosis up is a lot like a trolley problem, especially in the kind of decision aids that we ask clinicians to use with patients. You know, so you know, three women overdiagnosed versus one woman prevented from a breast cancer death and mammography, for example. You know, we set up these quite bald, apparently certain numbers. But we know that there's patterns in people's responses that, that might make it less simple than just weighing up three to one or five to one. So um, the less certain it is, you know, the more difficulty people have. And we're always dealing with uncertainty. Um, or uh, sometimes people have a sense that they might have a right to something and that those rights are more important than making sure that you have more benefits and harms in a whole population. So it's not uncommon for people to feel like they have a right to screening, for example, if they're accustomed to that screening existing. Um, so there's all kinds of intuitions that might lead people to care about things other than just the outcomes, other than just weighing up the benefits and the harms. But there's also there's some really common objections to that way of thinking. We just have to weigh it all up and work out what gives us the maximum benefit and the minimum harm in the population and do that. Um, the two main objections are that that way of thinking allows a couple of people to be a lot worse off as long as the population effect is improved. So, and utilitarians are really criticised for this a lot. So um, the classic example in philosophy is the the person being thrown to the lions in the Colosseum. You know, like if, if thousands of people in the Colosseum are made really happy by the one person being torn apart by the lions, then, you know, does that justify the person being torn apart by the lions? And of course we all say, no, it's never appropriate for people to be torn apart by lions. Um, so the objection there is the idea that we might be insufficiently attentive to the suffering of the minority. And I think that is relevant here to some extent, because often if we're talking, for example, about withdrawing a service, there might actually be a small number of people who would have had their lives extended by participating in the program. Of course, the, reason, the only reason the program would be removed is if there's many more people who are being harmed, but those people still exist. So it seems quite important to acknowledge them and not just acknowledge them, but do our very best to make sure that they get the best possible care and we're ensuring that they get the best possible care. And this is such a thorny problem that you're opening up. I mean, it reminds me of the kind of economic arguments of socialism. Um, you know, in some places in the UK and Europe, perhaps the, the people are much more comfortable with the idea of redistribution of wealth, but we're in North America and that's, you know, antithetical to, to a lot of people's thinking here. And that's, and those things seem quite resistant to 
change. So mm. within the context of kind of overdiagnosis, do you think that's actually possible or, or, or are we sort of telling the windows ago? Uh, it's certainly difficult, um, but I think not impossible. Uh, the thing that I think is the key, the thing that I think is has the most moral weight in talking about overdiagnosis is the fact that we're not just talking about cost saving, we're not just talking about ineffectiveness, we're talking about actual harm. We're talking about actually harming people who think that they're being helped. So I think we've got to find a way to communicate that message more clearly. Um, not just to the general public, but also to clinicians, you know, who often will have one case from their own history. We know from the work we've done in PSA, for example, um, so in Australia, there's still a very high rate of PSA testing. And we found that there's um, four basic ways that GPs approach PSA testing. And one of them was, um, one of the four ways was GPs who just tested absolutely everybody and mostly that was because they'd had one man who died of prostate cancer who they felt that they could have helped and they felt so terrible about how much that person suffered that they put that ahead of the very clear probabilistic evidence that PSA testing on balance is a terrible idea. So if you've got those profound emotional anchors, it's quite difficult. So this gets back to what I was saying before about emotion being so important in building these social movements. So we have to find a way to convince people not just probabilistically, not just based on the, the kind of evidence-based medicine arguments that this is harming people, but we also, I think, have to find a way to tell the stories, mm -hmm. you know, to really actually connect emotionally with people because the problem always with overdiagnosis is that an individual person who's been overdiagnosed and overtreated looks exactly the same as an individual person who's been beneficially diagnosed and saved. You can't tell the difference at a clinical level. So you're never going to see your overdiagnosed people. You are going to see the person that you feel you might have saved who died the terrible death. That's very difficult to deal with being at the coalface of that, I think, and we've got to find a way to tell those stories of overdiagnosis in an emotionally compelling way. Because some of the work that um, people have suggested that could go into addressing this problem is around health literacy and improving health li health literacy. If if you sort of take the argument that part of the problem is perhaps some people don't understand these the mm. numbers and that kind of thing, but if I mean, do you have a sense of um, I don't know if there's any work that's been done, but if people understand and have the best kind of decision aids, it seems to me those moral intuitions are still going to play a huge part um, mm. in, in a decision. So to what extent do you think we need to focus on, on that aspect of things? So I think improving health literacy is always a good thing mm. because that is going to increase people's autonomy mm -hmm. and that's going to increase their ability to have a life that's consistent with their values. So I think in a perfect world, we would all have perfect health literacy. So I don't think, I definitely don't think we should give up on the project no. of health literacy. Um, Sorry, no, that wasn't. But, no, 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 I think that's no, what I know. But, but, I, but, like... but I, want, I just wanted to be really clear about that. <laughs> um, and I have fabulous colleagues who are working on developing the best possible decision aids mm. and they have lots and lots of evidence um, 
that those decision aids greatly improve people's decision making. So they, they really can mm -hmm. help. There's no doubt that, that they can help. They can also be modified to um, be more accessible to people who just have lower literacy, mm -hmm. generally, you know, people that have more difficulty with language or with reading. Yeah. Um, so there's no doubt that they can do some of the work. But I think we can't delegate all the work mm. to that process. So like we were saying before, I think we, we also have to really take seriously the need to reset the defaults in the system mm -hmm. um, because it's too much to expect that health literacy work to do everything in mm. fixing this problem. I think the, the people that make the bad standards have to take responsibility for changing the bad standards. Yeah. I mean, and one of the things we were talking about is um, how the the decisions that we make are framed by the kind of the culture and the mm. the sort of context that we all that we live in, which is very much geared towards medicalization and um, intervention. So um, that's going to, of course, shape our moral, moral intuitions as well. Mm. Um, so addressing that, I think that's yeah how, how do we begin to address those I mean I know you've said it's a system a system change but that seems to be more pervasive and, and deep-rooted than just the system alone mm, yeah that's true um so there's things that can be done in the system so for example in our work in PSA we saw very different practices between the UK and Australia so we interviewed UK GPs as well as Australian GPs um, and UK GPs were approaching PSA in a completely different way and that was partly because the nice guidance gave mm -hmm. them the backup they needed mm. basically um, and there was a process that they could use there was the two-step process where you you know give people information and you tell them to go away and then if they if they really still want a PSA test then they can come back so there's no just testing on the spot so there's things you can do to reset the defaults in the system um, the cultural stuff though I completely agree with you um, is going to be different from place to place I mean in every culture what's needed is going to be different um, but it has to be partly, I think, about having this conversation in an accessible way more broadly. Mm -hmm. So um, that's partly about having really good conversations with health, health journalists that get them to a point where they're ready to write the really critical stories. And we've got some fantastic examples of some health journalists in Australia, for example, who are starting to mm -hmm. do that. And they're starting to pick up on stories that us as academic researchers would never find. Now, really good examples of things being planted in pharmacies that encourage people to have lots of unnecessary tests, for example. Mm -hmm. um, so starting that conversation broadly is really important. Something that we do a lot of in Sydney is community juries or citizens' juries. And I think that's another way of starting to seed those conversations because um, that involves bringing people into a room and giving them a whole day about the evidence and the arguments and then another whole day to deliberate amongst themselves about what we should do in policy terms. And people always go away saying, you've completely changed my world. I never understood it like this before. I'm going to tell everyone. <laughs> so um, opportunities like that for people to really understand the issues, uh, they're resource intensive. It takes a lot of time and you can't bring everyone in the community into a conversation on every single um, diagnosis that is leading to overdiagnosis. But it's a start. It makes some contribution. You've been listening to Stacey Carter talking about some of the cultural and contextual dimensions of overdiagnosis. Her essay, which we mentioned, is now available on bmj.com. 
We'll be back with more interviews from the conference over the next few days, so keep an ear out for them. Subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss out. Thanks for listening.